we're told just once that Jesus made a whip. And he used it on his own people. In that story is the story of God's love for those farthest from him. The story of ministry to internationals. Is this thing off? I'm hearing an echo. Um, The story of internationals, the story of Interface Ministries as well. It's our story. It all began when God created human beings, created them in a world where they would bear his image, carrying out his rule and leading the whole creation in his worship. When they rebelled, not trusting him, he still sent them out to fill the earth. He also set in motion his plan to reconcile them to himself and to one another so that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. It was for this that God created a new people through Abraham to give a foretaste of a new world, to be a royal priesthood, bringing sinners everywhere to him. It was for this that he gave the temple with all its curtains and spaces to exclude sinners from a deadly encounter with a holy God and its priests and sacrifices to draw them closer through forgiveness, reconciliation, and renewal. The prophet Isaiah saw in visions the nation streaming to Jerusalem, the temple a house of prayer for all of them. The prophet Ezekiel too, saw the temple, but he saw it with a river flowing out of it to bring life to a land in which those who had left their own lands to join God's people could now live with them and flourish. Though God had not yet opened the temple to Gentiles, the courtyard Jesus cleared with his whip had been created so they could at least come near and watch and even join in prayer. But what did Jesus find there? No space or quiet for Gentile prayer, but the tables, the noise, the commotion of selling animals and exchanging money so God's people could go on up to the temple themselves, but at cost to those outside. Nor was this the only time or place where Jesus' own people failed to notice thirst for God in those at a distance. While Jesus sat at the Samaritan well and talked with the only woman who came to get water in the heat of the day, his disciples went to town. While she discovered the Savior, all they found in town was the food they went to buy. They didn't see that the townsfolk were as thirsty and ready to trust in Jesus as was the townswoman already with him by the well. It was she who learned first, And she who told her people that although they had been seeking God in the wrong temple, and they weren't welcome in the right one, God had come to their town, to them. Peter learned the lesson well. After Jesus' death, when the veil closing off the holiest place from view was torn, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the Father, and after the Holy Spirit's dramatic coming at Pentecost, Peter was summoned to the home of the Roman centurion Cornelius. There, even as Peter told them about Jesus, 
The Holy Spirit made God's welcome of this seeking, believing Gentile household unmistakably evident. And Peter knew that God had now done all that was needed to include those who had been so long excluded. Jesus had taken on the sins of the whole world so that anyone, anywhere, who turned from sin might come through Jesus into the presence of God. Today, the world is interconnected, and the good news of Jesus has circled the globe. For more than 100 years, Christians in North America have joined Christians elsewhere to send missionaries all over the world to find those who are lost and reconcile them to God in Jesus, to take the blessings of life with God so that all might share in them, God has blessed this missionary work so greatly that there are now more Christians over there than here. Indeed, Christians now come here from over there. God is not limited to sending his own people out. Much of the world still has not been reached by missionaries sent, even the most creative ones. But God sends lost people to us. Among the almost two million international students in North America, most come not knowing God at all, and many having never known a Christian. Just as God sent Naaman in search of healing, the Queen of Sheba in search of wisdom, the Magi in search of a king, so he sends men and women to us hoping to find what they haven't found at home. As God taught his people to welcome strangers into their midst, to share his blessings and teach them his ways, so he calls us to open our homes and lives to those he now sends. Remember that you were strangers in Egypt, Israel was told, as reason to welcome hospitably those who, like them, left home to find life. Remember that you were once estranged from God, we are told, as reason to welcome those still so estranged. So we remember, we also look ahead. We keep before us the vision of the world to come, of the temple of God grown to become a great city, the glories of all the nations brought into it, as from the whole world people stream in to the presence of God. Ours is not that city, come down from God to earth after the judgment of all peoples and all time, but as God in our time and place brings men, women, and children to himself from far away, we do enjoy a foretaste of that great gathering to worship. And as they leave, taking the gospel with them, we remember the spread of the gospel that came to us, and we share in the ongoing spread of the gospel, through which the whole earth <coughs> will finally see the glory of God, and it will be finally welcomed, finally enjoyed. So Interface Ministries, of which I'm a part for the last couple of years, is an expression of the church on mission to the whole world. But the world as it comes to us, right where we live, the world on our doorstep. And Interface serves the church that is answering God's call to welcome strangers God has sent to us. The church that is eager to taste and see that the Lord is Lord over all the earth, of all its peoples. The church that rejoices in Jesus' clearing of the courts so that those who want to look in on the worship and life of God's people can come close. The church that rejoices even more in Jesus' death and resurrection, which has torn down the dividing wall and called them with us to worship in his very presence.
my sense is that that's the kind of church that Calvary is. That we're a people who want the lost to actually come into the presence of the Lord. And so today, I want to talk with you about some of these lost people, these uh, what I've called unexpected theologians. Um, why call them unexpected theologians? Because they're people that don't look like the kind of people that are ready to believe in Jesus. And yet, just like people in the Bible that we meet, and the one we're going to spend some time with this morning, these are people who are right on the edge. They're actually eagerly seeking. Um, Let me read to you just a few words from an English writer um, whom I'd never heard of. And I should have heard of him. Uh, He's somebody who is connected to people that I, whose names I know well, um, whose writings I'm familiar with. But I'd never heard of him, and, and then I heard a very surprising thing about him, and I'll come to that in a moment. But listen to how he starts a book that he's, he wrote just a couple years ago. He says, writers are lost people. Nobody would write a book if they weren't lost. Nobody would write a book if they were not in search of paradise. And nobody would be in search of paradise unless they believed it might exist somewhere, which means out there, which means just beyond my reach. Writers can see paradise, but can never touch it. Writers want to belong to a place that is just beyond their reach, because if they were to reach the place, they would have to do the hard work of being in it. Writers don't belong anywhere or to anyone, and they do not want to. They are driven by some severance, and none of them understands it. Not just writers, painters, musicians, artists. Art is the search for intact things in a world in which all things are broken. And then he says, that paragraph was dishonest. I'm going to rewrite it. Here goes. I am a lost person. I wouldn't write books if I wasn't lost. I wouldn't write anything at all if I wasn't in search of paradise. And I wouldn't be in search of paradise if I didn't need it. And the book goes on from there. That was in 2019. In January of 2021, just a couple months ago, he was baptized. I heard about him because he was asked by another person who was not religious, um, but who knew that he'd become a Christian. And he asked him about it, and he says, I I was very surprised to become a Christian. Two years ago, you would never have thought, he would never have thought, that Jesus Christ was where he was going to be found. I read through the whole book. It's called Savage Gods. His name is Paul Kingsnorth. You get to the end and you have no idea that he's going to be found. That's what happened at the well in Sychar. So let's turn to that. You know the story. It's very familiar, but John sets it up this way. He says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
and it's been observed many, many times, that there was a way not to pass through Samaria. It's a bit of a detour, but Jews did it all the time. He had to pass through Samaria, not because the GPS said that was the only way to go. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Notice what John is doing. It's Samaria, but the well is a gift from Jacob to Joseph. It's a common ancestor of Jews and Samaritans. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. What time is that? Not 6 a.m. It's high noon. When, when do you go to get water in a hot place like that? In the early morning or in the evening? Okay? He's sitting by the well. It's the sixth hour, and there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. So what did Jesus do? He said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan, woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Right off the bat, she names the problem, doesn't she? And she begins a journey of, a very quick journey, journey's probably the wrong word, a very quick trip, in which she discovers who Jesus is. But she starts off with the most apparent thing. The thing which is an objection to what he's just done, but which, since he's done it, He's raising the issue of who they are. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Not only that, I'm a Samaritan woman. I'm out here in the heat of the day. That doesn't speak well of me. But it doesn't speak well of you that you're asking me for a drink. Who are you? And Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That phrase is so hard for us as Christians to grasp because we've already got a spiritual sense to it. We're thinking of it in its metaphorical sense, in its analogical sense. He puts it to her, there's a well right there with inert water that they pull water up from, and he says, if you'd known who I was, you'd be asking me for running water, living water, like a spring, not like a well. What should be her response to that? Think about yourself there at a well and a stranger whom you've rightly identified as somebody from that other group that you guys don't get along with, and he asked you for something and then, he, and then he tells you, well, you just didn't know who I really am and you would have asked me for this. I know what my response is. This guy's nuts. Um, uh, what's my way to get away? There's nobody around to protect me from him. That is not her response, is it? The woman responds to him very reasonably. Sir, you have nothing to wa draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Okay, I know who you are, but that also means you know who our common ancestor is. We, by all accounts, Jacob was a great man. The founder of the people. The one who had all those sons. 
But when he needed water and he was here, right here, what did he have to do? He dug a well. You're telling me you can do better than Jacob? It's, it's a very intelligent thing to say. It's a courageous thing to say. Um, but it's something that indicates a great deal of presence of mind. And Jesus responds to her in kind. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Am I greater than Jacob? Like beyond comparison. And how does the woman respond? She says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Something is going on here. It's a kind of trust that I know for myself doesn't always come. You make an outlandish claim, God. You affirm something which I know in the past you've done. And do I trust you? Sometimes, sometimes not. She feels her need so strongly, and she's open to him. She's willing to trust him. So what does he do? Does he make it easy? He throws her a curveball. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Now, just think about what you do when somebody makes you an offer that you want to avoid. We have all sorts of ways of saying, um, thank you, I'll go do that. And then we slip away. I think the younger generation has a term for that, ghosting. Just, just slip away. Don't, don't you know, turn off the, the setting that, that tells them that your text is being read. Um, don't let them know. And what does she do instead? She answers his command. I have no husband. Now, sometimes people read this and they think she's being evasive. That's not what Jesus says, is it? He answers her, you are right. He doesn't say, well, that was a tricky answer. Um, he doesn't say, uh, is that really what you mean? He says, you're right. You have no husband. You have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is Jesus doing his verily, verily number. You told me the truth. But I'm telling you that I already know the truth, and I know it more fully than you revealed. And her response to that, again, is remarkable. There's no evasion, no running away from the difficult truth. Instead, she goes where that truth leads her. If it's, if it's the truth that I've had five husbands and now I'm living with one who's not, what does, that, what does that tell you about my life? Well, it depends on how you look at it, right? If your ambition, like mine, is to have one wife for the whole of my life, Success is not five marriages. Right? But imagine instead your ambition is to 
have the best life you can get, and getting a better husband, if you can get one, is a way to improve. There are people in our world who think that way, aren't there? Um, by that measure, she's been quite successful. She's been able to get a husband each time. Until the last time. Now, of course, John doesn't tell us whether her marriages were going up or going down or going up and down. But he does tell us that the last time she's not married. Whatever was going on there, however attractive she must have been, whatever it was about her that was so attractive that men were marrying her after somebody else had married her and lost her, it wasn't working now. And not only that, the women of the town weren't interested in having her there when they were gathering, getting their water. So she's out there, not only when it's inconvenient, but when it's lonely. Her life has gotten to a place where she's not reconciled to others, and she's desperately in need of reconciliation to God. And that is actually the question that she now puts to Jesus. But see her dilemma. The Samaritans are not without a temple. It's not that the Jews won't let them into their temple. No, they think they've got a temple which is the right temple to worship at, and the Jews are wrong. So she could go to her temple, or she could go to theirs if she were a Jew, but she can't as a Samaritan go to that temple. Ah, but where's the prophet from? who just showed that he, is, he knows what only God could show him. And that's the question she puts to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Prophets don't come to just denounce, do they? Even Jonah, when he went to Nineveh, and his Words to the Ninevites, as they're recorded in Jonah, sound like a denunciation. He knew they weren't just a denunciation. That's what got him so ticked off. Jonah chapter 4. He was so angry because the people heard the denunciation of their wickedness and they repented. He knew that God had sent him there to denounce their wickedness so that they might repent so that God could do what? Be compassionate. Forgive. Give them new life. And Jonah didn't want new life for them. He was prepared to die because he was so angry with God. And in fact, he explains that's why he left on the ship in the first place. It wasn't he was afraid that if he went to Nineveh that they would do harm to him. He was afraid that God would be compassionate and they would repent and they would be saved. And he hoped that if he went the other way and they didn't hear the denunciation of their sins, that they would be destroyed by God. This woman knows that the place where sin can be dealt with is in the place where sacrifice is made. But if it's a Jewish prophet from God who comes and tells her, isn't it reasonable to presume that the place for her to go is that temple? But for generations, 
Her people have been saying the place to meet God and to find forgiveness is at this temple, not that temple. It's the same God, but it's two very different places to go. Now, one of the popular answers today is, and and it has been not just today, is to say, well, it really doesn't matter which temple. And that's not the answer that Jesus gives. He doesn't say, oh, well, you know, temple schmemple. Either one. God's, I mean, he's the God of the whole universe, so you can find him there. Uh, We know our Old Testament enough to remember that God was quite particular about the worship happening in Jerusalem and not happening elsewhere. What was one of the marks of the kings of Israel and Judah? How did you evaluate their reign? Did they or did they not eliminate the high places? All those alternate places of worship. Did they call the people to come to Jerusalem, to come to the temple? Until that curtain was torn, the temple in Jerusalem was the place to be. And Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming, it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the Jews were right. but they were looking for a better day too. And the Samaritans were looking for a better day. And she recognizes immediately that what Jesus is saying to her is that that day has come. And so she moves to the next step. The progression has been, I see you're a Jew, to I hear you're making, you're promising me something which you'd have to be greater than Jacob to promise, to You've just told me something about myself that says you must have access to God. You must be somebody that God is showing what the deal is. Two, you're telling me that the time we've been looking forward to has come? Is it possible that you are the Messiah? And how does she put that? She says, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus hears what she's saying. She's not just declaring something about, you know, some doctrinal truth. He answers her, I who speak to him, he. And all you have to do is think about how many times he doesn't say he's the Messiah. How many times he quiets people who speak of his being the Messiah to realize this woman, he's not at all worried about conveying his identity to. He trusts her with the truth. And he confirms to her. And suddenly the conversation gets interrupted. Right, right when she's gotten the answer. Okay, I'm really talking to the Messiah. The promised day has come. The disciples come back. And they marvel that he's talking with a woman. We're at verse 27. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They didn't know what to make of the conversation he was having. They have no clue where it's gone. And she recognizes that he's got his friends. And she leaves. But she doesn't leave just to escape. She left her water jar, so she's in a hurry, and the water jar is not full, so there's no point in taking it back. 
she went away into town and she said to the people, and this is where we, this is what really confirms to us that she was not trying to get away from his knowledge of her sin. Because she puts that front and center. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Her credibility with them is not shot, at least not around this question. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. So imagine the people coming from the town. They're on their way. And the disciples are, are trying to figure out what's going on here. They say, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, someone brought him something to eat. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And then he gets to the really painful thing. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What does he mean? We didn't see any direction for him, from him for them to go in and find people to evangelize. They're just his disciples. He recognizes who people are. He sees what's going on in their life. He wants them to see what's going on in their lives. He sent them to a place where somebody else had done all the hard work. Remember that story he tells of the sower? You sow in this kind of soil, and the soil, and that kind of soil, and so in that, and, and this soil gives you an increase. It's not that every kind of soil, it's not that every village in Samaria or every village in Israel is, has fields white for harvest. But this one did. And they went in and they came out and they saw none of it. That lone woman came out. Jesus saw it. And she goes back and she tells her townspeople and they come out and listen to the conclusion. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony he told me all that I ever did. One prophetic word from him about a woman's sinfulness and her willingness to tell people that was how I knew he was from God. You've got to come and pay attention to him too. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. What a progression. Now, is that just then, or could that be now? Notice, I can't come here today, I haven't come here today to tell you that Battle Creek is a field white for harvest. I don't know the spiritual state of Battle Creek right now. And maybe you don't either. But I can tell you that 
what I heard Paul Kingsnorth say is not the only, he's not the only one speaking like that. I'm listening to a book right now by a British historian who's not a believer, although he wrote in an, in an essay that led to the book that he then published, it's a book called Dominion, he said, I'm a proud Christian. What had happened to him that would lead him, an agnostic, to say, I'm a proud Christian? He'd come to the place of realizing that after a life in which he had left Sunday school very young, given up entirely on Christianity, he'd come back to the realization that everything that mattered the most to him, he had because of Jesus. And so he wrote a book about the impact of the gospel on the West and ultimately on the whole world. A testimony to the gospel and its message and its power and its effect. About 100 years ago, a psychology professor left the University of Michigan to go to the University of Chicago. He was offered better pay there. But when he left Ann Arbor to go to Chicago, he was never a member of a church again. You know his name, John Dewey. Famous guy. He has a lasting legacy in Ann Arbor, not just an intellectual one. There's a building that now houses the university's Museum of Archaeology. But if you look at the cornerstone of that building, it says Students Christian Association. He chaired the committee that raised the money to build that building. He and a number of other leaders in that field were leaving the faith. So my ears perked up when a friend of mine said, you need to pay attention to this psychology professor at the University of Toronto. I think he's on his way to becoming a Christian. A hundred years later, somebody who's in a field that has been for many years, not just, it's been an alternative explanation for human beings to the Christian one. And here he was drawing crowds of people, first in person, then online, to listen to him work slowly through Genesis. Why? He was discovering that the story of the Bible was the story that makes the most sense of our life as people. He was going from a kind of mythical um, explanation of that to having to come to grips with the historical reality of Jesus. I was listening to the book that he wrote after this because I was curious. It's just full of descriptions from, of stories from the Bible and explanations of things. And um, I happened to have my earbuds still in. Uh, well, I had one in and one dangling, and I'm, I'm at the checkout counter at the office supply store. And the young man there says, what are you listening to? He thinks I'm listening to music. And I told him, oh, I'm listening to a book. I'm listening to 12 Rules for Life. He said, I'm listening to that too. But I don't, I don't have any background in Christianity, and so there's a lot of the stuff I don't understand he's talking about. I said, well, would you like to come and talk about it? We can have some coffee. He came over at 7.30 on a Saturday morning because he was heading back to school 
the next week. And that was the time he had. And spent several hours trying to understand the biblical account. If he hadn't asked me, I wouldn't have had a clue that he was a young man who had no background in the faith. And he was curious about Jesus. So I don't know that the fields are white with harvest. In my experience, we sow and we wait for the harvest. We cultivate and we wait for the harvest. And sometimes the harvest comes to us. But as Paul Kingsnorth says, there are lost people. And, the, and as the woman at the well shows us, they are a lot closer than you would think they are. So the invitation is to actually believe and to pray that the Holy Spirit is at work around us and to give us eyes like Jesus, not eyes like the disciples. Then, they're disciples. They learn, right? As I said at the very beginning, the Apostle Peter would become very quick to recognize what God was doing. He wasn't then. So wherever you are on the journey, whether you're with Peter at Cornelius or Peter at Sychar, what's the next step for you? Is it to pray? No, it's always to pray. Is it to start asking questions? Is it simply to open yourself up to a conversation? Is it to be like the woman and to talk about how you were lost and found and what you found of Jesus? Jesus. 